0: Welcome back to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winsett. And I'm Max Frost. Today we have, we've been hyping this episode up for a little bit now. We are joined by Kim Strassel of the Wall Street Journal. Kim is a long-term member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, where she writes editorials under the Review and Outlook section. Check it out. She also writes the weekly Potomac Watch column, available every Friday. We brought Kim on to talk about her new book,
1: Resistance at All Costs, How Trump Haters Are Breaking America. And we had a fun conversation with Kim. Some of you will likely disagree with a lot of what she's saying, but we believe in the competition of ideas here. We enjoyed the conversation, thought it was fruitful. And we think you will, too. We hope that you do. So without further ado, here is Kim Strassel. Kim, welcome to AI. It's great to be here. So we're here at AI where we're big fans of America, capitalism, democracy, free exp- free expression, debate. Uh, In your new book, Resistance at All Costs, you argue that these are precisely the things that Trump's critics are destroying.
2: Yeah. So we've heard this narrative over the past three years that Donald Trump is destroying our institutions and Donald Trump is undercutting our republic. And look, I do think that Donald Trump can be very norm breaking in many ways, uh, in particular in his speech, his rhetoric, his tweets, uh, his demeanor. But I think if you take a, a Big breath and step back and then you look at what's actually happened, a lot of the lasting damage and the things we should be most concerned about with regards our institutions and some of our political norms are coming from those who have viewed him as illegitimate since the minute he was elected and with that adopted the mentality that they could take whatever steps necessary to try to remove him
0: from office. Yeah. And this storyline of Trump breaking all of our norms has been going on for years now. It's easy and stories of corruption. It's easy to just tune it out. I am guilty of that myself. So just going back before the election, when did this start? I know a lot of people talk about the FBI getting involved to dig up dirt on Trump uh, for some dossier. Fusion GPS is a word always thrown around. I usually have tried to drone this out for a while, but now, now that we have you here, and I'm sure a lot of listeners feel the same, could you Start with the pre-election. What actually happened?
2: Sure. You know, the book is about the resistance. And most of us think of that as starting the day after election. Right. But actually, I would argue that and I do in the book that the first episode of resistance came, as you just said, from the FBI and uh, that. In essence, former FBI director Jim Comey had the first case, if undiagnosed, of Trump derangement syndrome, and they got it in their heads that they were going to protect the country against this threat. And I think because of that mindset, because he so rattled them or he was so distasteful to them, were willing to accept a lot of pretty weak tea uh, as a basis for an unprecedented action, which was a counterintelligence investigation into a sitting presidential campaign. It was nuts. Even saying that again these days is nuts. Uh,
0: there could be precedent now when Tulsi Gabbard is elected the exactly. the, known, the known Russian asset.
2: Exactly. You know, I was so happy. I thought Hillary Clinton did the country a favor this week when she accused Tulsi Gabbard of being a Russian asset because it sort of highlighted the absurdity of the initial claim that Donald Trump was an asset of the Russian government. And some of us when we first read that dossier, we're like, "This is wild," <laughs> and yet the press court just went all in, and pretty soon the 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 wild became mainstream n- ideas.
1: Yeah, what's so amazing is that it's almost like we're living in just like a cloud of hysteria about all this stuff. So it's when you trace it back, it's like now we all know that there's all these scandals about Trump, and there's this and that, different reasons why people don't like him, why he's not fit for office. But to pinpoint like why it first started, I think most you know, normal political watchers kind of even struggle to do that. And then they can say, well, it was the Russia thing, which then turned out to be a bust, and then you know, the Stormy Stormy Daniels? Stormy Daniels. Stormy Daniels thing, a bust, one one thing after another. And it's just like, you know, where does it all come from? Where are we headed now? There's so many questions about it that just kind of show that we're living in a fog of hysteria.
2: We are. And I think it's why, just to to relate this to recent news, why Democrats are having such a hard time selling the public on their impeachment inquiry. You know, the measure of impeachment is can you successfully convince a significant majority of Americans that you have exposed and documented a high crime or misdemeanor, right? I mean, look, Democrats they're right. They can they can impeach Donald Trump over anything if they don't like the color of his tie. And there have been so much of this, this hysteria that you mentioned, and the endless this after that, starting with Russia, and then Stormy Daniels, and then the taxes, and his business interests, and now we're at the Ukraine, is that a significant number of Americans have just tuned it out, because their view is, this is just the latest attempt to take out Donald Trump, so I don't need to pay attention to this either. But we risk, again, to go back to some of the damage we're seeing that's a good example. We are risking turning impeachment into a partisan political tool. And I keep warning people that are on the liberal side of the aisle, you do not want to set a precedent here, which is what you were doing, of uh, so that the next time we have a Democratic president and a Republican House, that the first thing they do is file articles of impeachment.
0: Yeah, So a lot of this has the ring of the boy who cried wolf, and that's usually the analogy people reach for. But at the end of the story, there actually is a wolf at the door and and there's the problem. So I, again, I haven't been following the latest Ukraine developments as much as possible, but there's been a lot of smoke throughout Trump's presidency. But is the Ukraine storyline, there seems like there might be a little bit more fire there than elsewhere, or is that uh
2: right? I, I mean, not not so far as Democrats' initial claim, yeah. right? So their initial claim, and I keep reminding everyone of this because the goalposts keep moving. But the initial claim was that it was an impeachable offense for Donald Trump to threaten to withhold aid to Ukraine uh, unless they handed over dirt on Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. The problem is that we've got the transcript now. He didn't do that, at least not explicitly in there. They say, well, implicitly, but that's an admission that it's not actually in the transcript. Uh, We've heard from the Ukrainians saying they did not feel it was a quid pro quo, whatever that word means, by the way. And the Ukrainians, in fact, did not even know that aid was being withheld until a month after that conversation. So now we're having all of this other testimony, Bill Taylor this week, a longtime State Department official saying, well, maybe behind the scenes, that's what was being demanded. But they haven't really produced evidence of that either. So now we see a lot of people in the press and in the Democratic Party saying, oh, well, it was corrupt simply to ask Ukraine anything to even help us with our investigation in 2016. I think that's going to be a stretch again for a lot of Americans, given the Democratic role in the Russia campaign and the FBI.
0: Yeah. And it seems like they kind of had the chance. I mean, my, so I don't know if he's listening to the podcast, but my grandpa is one of the... Hello, grandpa. You know, <laughs> pops, if you're listening. He's, he's been... We've, we've been having a long-running debate for... Since Trump was elected now. And he's been saying that, oh, I think they've really got him now. Mueller's really got him. He's dead to rights. When... <laughs> And I was saying, Pops, I mean, I didn't support Trump in the primary I, and I've been waiting. I thought something, I thought the McCain comments in 2015 were going to take him down. So I've been saying people have thought they've had him finally for the longest time. It doesn't seem like it's happening. It seems like when the Mueller report came out and it wasn't this huge smoking gun, that seems like it was their best chance. And now they just... It has to come down to an election at that point.
2: Well, right. And it was their best shot and they blew it. It wasn't there. I mean, or rather, there's just no evidence there. So then they considered obstruction. And then, look, I think that they accidentally fell into impeachment here, meaning that the liberal – Masses had been demanding this ever since he got elected. And, uh, when this Ukraine thing popped out into the media and the press, there was a concerted push by a lot of activist groups saying, this is our last shot. And they went out and threatened a lot of moderate, uh, Democratic members and freshmen and said, if you don't get on board with the impeachment right now, uh, you're going to get a primary. And, As soon as some of them shifted over, Nancy Pelosi was in the minority. I think she knew that this was a pretty weak basis on which to proceed, but now they've done it, and I kind of view it as they're fulfilling a campaign pledge. <laughs> yeah. um, and and here we go. There probably I don't see any reason, any way that there will not be an impeachment vote. But the question: Have you convinced any Republicans? And those I talk to in the House and the Senate, I mean, Mitt Romney aside, nobody's really going there.
1: We call him Pierre Delecto on this. Podcast. Yes, Oh,
2: Pierre Delecto. I should I should call him that too.
1: But uh, so, don't you feel a bit though that? You know, there's there is the hysteria, the Trump haters and Trump derangement syndrome and all this kind of stuff. But on the other hand, I mean Trump really plays into their hands with so much stuff, it seems like. Like the whole trying to hold the G seven summit at his resort. Undoubtedly. Or the Helsinki summit. So what is the what what's his goal there? Or is this just him not really not really knowing, or is he intentionally doing this and kind of playing into their hands as part of his shtick? Like what is it?
2: It's just Donald Trump. Right. I mean, I think the more we watch him, the more a couple of things I think motivate him. He when he gets punched, he punches back. Uh He doesn't, again, tend to abide by a lot of those speech rhetoric idea norms that a lot of Americans are used to seeing in their presidents. I make the point in the book that uh, I think one of Donald Trump's issues or why he ends up in so much trouble is that he does everything backward as a a usual president. So, you know, most presidents, if they have an idea, they go and they huddle with their advisors and then they they work out all the policy details and then they get a big PR push ready and then the president goes and rolls it out. And it's all been very well thought out. And, you know, the lawyers have looked at it. Donald Trump just walks out to his airplane and like whatever comes into his head comes out of his mouth. He just sort of throws ideas out there. Now, usually they end up going back and going through that process. But after he's first floated them and usually they end up being legal or sound or we get rid of them, right? Like Doral isn't happening. But it, it, it does give the media huge amounts of opportunity to pounce.
0: So is this is the media and the resistances air quotes response to Trump noticeably different than during the George W. Bush years? I remember there's a lot of hysterical code pink protests and things of that nature. And even just like being a middle school and high school people, I guess middle school mainly, people talking about George Bush as the worst president ever. There's people put Hitler mustaches on him at protests. It seems like the reaction is pretty hysterical during his time as well.
2: Is Trump that different? It is. And so this is really the point of the book, okay, is that sure there's always been huge disdain for Republican presidents, right? But what we haven't necessarily had is the breaking of so many boundaries in the pursuit of actually removing them from office. And and that's what the book goes through. I mean, again, just to restate this, you had an FBI that was conducting a counterintelligence investigation to a presidential campaign. And the book details all of Jim Comey's behavior that really crossed some lines along the way way, you know, deciding to go and brief the president-elect in January 2017 and not tell him that his campaign had been subject to this. Uh, the the keeping of secret memos and the leaking of those conversations with the president. I mean, this was extraordinary behavior. Uh, the, the discussion of the 25th Amendment within the FBI and the Department of Justice and whether or not you could remove them. But but it goes on, too. Look at the Brett Kavanaugh hearing um, and uh, look at the complete breakdown of norms and that. And look, we've had rough confirmation hearings before. Some of us remember Clarence Thomas and his confirmation hearing. But what we haven't had is a, a Senate Judiciary member. Dianne Feinstein, who purposely withheld these accusations until after the nominee had made made it through their hearings. Members like Cory Booker, who had their Spartacus moments and said, yes, I'm going to release committee sensitive information, even though it's a violation of the rules. You know, Democrats deputizing the FBI to pronounce judgment on a, you know, how many, but this gets to the damage part. How many really capable, smart American people are now going to be dissuaded from serving government because they fear such an episode can happen to them. How many Americans now have lost trust in the FBI and the Department of Justice to do the right thing? And I've got polls in the book showing this. That institution has been severely damaged. Putting it back together is going to take a lot longer than Donald Trump's time in office.
1: Well, I, first of all, will you go through some of the other allegations against Kavanaugh in the mm-hmm. book. And when you just read it, I mean it's like the first one, you know, people argued about it somewhere, and then just one after another, these things started piling out with no nothing to substantiate them.
0: I think that was the straw that broke a lot like a lot of people say this all the time. Conservatives that did not like the president beforehand say the Kavanaugh Hearing is what made them kind of flip and start supporting him more often. Because the Blasey Ford accusation seemed credible, but the ones after that that got all this runtime in the New Yorker and elsewhere were just so they just seem so blatantly Fabricated, though.
2: Yeah. I always say if you look at those uh, Republicans that actually won the 2018 election in the Senate. Um, you know, they owe their thanks to Michael Avenatti and also to the press corps who ran all of this. And look, I got a chapter in there, too, about the media. This is I fundamentally believe that if the media had not decided to, in essence, join one side of a partisan warfare here, that a lot of this behavior would never have happened because we count on the media to be guardrails in politics and to call balls and strikes and to say, no, that's over the top. Um, not only did they not do that here, they were the ones running the uncorroborated allegations. And it's, too, look at the damage of that. The the number of people who have uh, expressed
1: faith in the media has just plummeted. Well, you have a statistic in here from, I think it was Arizona State University study, of financial journalists, only 4.4% consider themselves to be right of center.
2: Oh, it's a crazy industry Which... that way. And, and some of us who've done it, I've done this 25 years, we've always known that the press corps, leans left. Okay. But what we've seen over the last few years is something else entirely. I mean, this is extraordinary and overt. And it's a it's a campaign to, to do in this president.
0: Now, we probably should ask, I know we have listeners of all political persuasions, and a lot of Democrats also have lost total faith in the FBI for kind of the mere image reasons about how there's leaked messages, I think, of FBI agents saying derogatory things about Hillary. Mm-hmm. There's Comey's actions where he At one point, he became a hero to the resistance. At another point, he was a hero to the Republicans. So, I mean, the FBI also seemed to not behave the best way toward Clinton as well.
2: Oh, absolutely not. Look, I mean, probably an even more extraordinary statement than the FBI counterintelligence into a campaign. The FBI investigated both the (laughs) nominees for the presidency, like, I mean, and, and... Now that we have seen Jim Comey up close and personal a little bit more and watched him on his grandiose book tour, this seems less surprising to some of us. This man truly does believe that he was qualified to pass judgment on, you know, this entire process. And he was correctly excoriated by the inspector general. In that report on his handling of the Hillary Clinton investigation, in particular, what the IG called insubordination—that word was actually used uh, with regards to his decision to to hold that press conference and say, you know, and then and then lambast Hillary Clinton in front of the country—and then they reopen this again a week before the election. I think the Clinton team has an honest grievance there about how the FBI handled that entire case.
1: It really is kind of a case study in just. Incompetency for a lot of reasons, it seems.
0: Well, it feels like the burn after reading Coen Brothers' movie of just the. Have you seen that? I haven't. It's like the intelligence agencies just totally bumbling around and messing up everything, and like there's no grand conspiracy. It's just a lot of people not like just bumbling around.
2: Well, you know, some of us, by the way, and just. I would point this out. The Wall Street Journal, all the way back when Barack Obama nominated Jim Comey, we said, don't do it, dude. I mean, we wrote an editorial that said, this guy really believes himself to be, you know, beyond the normal realms of it. He's a grandstander. You know, you can't necessarily trust him. He's a slippery guy. He's a bit of a thuggish prosecutor. Look what he did to Martha Stewart. Look what he did to Frank Quattrone. So, uh, and we were not heeded. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so only people listen to the Review and Outlook session. That's
2: right. Read the Wall Street Journal editorial columns. <laughs> um,
1: so kind of in line with the media and something else you talk about. So, you've, I mean, there's this whole narrative now of Trump dismantling the administrative state. Uh, I think Michael Lewis had a whole book about how bureaucrats are being, like, purged and they – yeah, whatever, you know. On the one hand, it's like you have these people who are, you know, applauding these bureaucrats who are kind of sabotaging mm-hmm. the mandate Trump was elected to deliver on, yet on the other hand, you have all these people pointing around saying, look, he can't get anything done. So it's just such a catch-22. And like I, I always think about Rex Tillerson. I hear so many people say, you know, Rex Tillerson is completely incompetent and all this kind of stuff. He ran ExxonMobil mm-hmm. for years. Right. And he gets into the State Department and all of a sudden he's not able to do anything. I, there's just so much here that just kind of stands out to me as just – completely hypocritical and the catch 22 is about is a way i see it.
2: Yeah, the thing that amuses me about those those books and that writing about, you know, the poor bureaucrat. I mean, in the war between Donald Trump and the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy is definitely winning. So, you know, i mean, come on. Um, i've i have a whole chapter in the book about the bureaucratic resistance and you know, Look, there's a study that I also cite in there. Senator Ron Johnson, his committee did a study of the first 125 days of the Trump administration. There were 126 leaks, one oh. a day, um, and many of them involving incredibly vital national security information. And we still don't know who was engaged in all that, but those were coming from within, right? Those were not coming from the Trump people that he brought in with them. That, that's a bureaucratic thing. We now have The whistleblower issue, the anonymous whistleblower issue that's at the center of this impeachment inquiry, but he's or she is just the latest of a lot of whistleblowers. We have, you know, there's evidence out there of the bureaucracy bragging. They've been taped uh, and shown to say, well, you know, we're slowing things down and, you know, we're throwing spanners in the works. There was a a little review done by one of the newspapers, and again, it's in the book, Not long after Donald Trump was elected, in which they uh, surveyed the employees at a number of big departments and agencies and found that 95% of the campaign donations had gone to Hillary Clinton. So imagine, to your Tillerson point, imagine going and showing up at the job and knowing that 95% of your workforce despises you and is out to get you. I mean, maybe not out to get you. I'm sure there are many, many well-qualified and dutiful federal employees. But even having a small percentage of that workforce out to get you is a terrifying idea.
0: Yeah. I've always thought the the term deep state sounded kind of conspiratorial. But when you put it in these terms of just the Bureaucrats intentionally throwing sand in their gears to th- slow things down. I, I see where their gripe comes from. I, I liked a lot in the book you had, uh, I think it was a Washington Post op ed, someone saying, I'm not
1: a member of this deep state, and then continuing to describe how they are <laughs> a member of the deep exactly.
2: state. Exactly. <laughs> okay. No, it was very, that was actually the headline. And, you know, this was a guy who worked at the Interior Department and he causes huge ruckus because, oh my goodness, God forbid, he was actually transferred into a new job and his department was shut down. And this to him was, you know, morally uh beyond the pale and and you know he, he gave this big thing about how, you know, I, I really need to do this climate change work and it but, you know, everyone if we have a, a federal bureaucracy where everyone is allowed to make their own decisions about what is an appropriate or inappropriate policy, it's a recipe for anarchy.
0: Yeah. And and now there's a new book coming out by the, uh, whoever wrote that anonymous New York Times This is unbelievable. is now shopping a, quote, tell-all book, but he's not telling us who his it's anon- name is. It's an anonymous book? It's an, right? It will be an anonymous book. Oh, my God. From within, from within the Trump administration,
2: like a wow. tell-all about the from somewhere within the, the deep state, if you want to say, and they're not going to give their name out.
0: Yeah. I mean, I remember we had a bet at AEI's lunch back when the New York Times op-ed came out. We all took bets on how long it would take for the media to figure out who that anonymous person was. And we all thought it'd be like a day, a week, maybe five days. Like, it is impressive how they've stayed anonymous this whole time, I guess.
2: Well, it's it's not as hard to imagine when no one in the press corps is actively seeking or even wants to expose the name. When you have the willing help of the entire <laughs> press corps, you, you can manage to do a lot. <laughs>
1: that is true. And so one other thing, you don't – I don't think in the book you go too much into it. The book kind of focuses more on D.C. itself. But this stuff has really bled into society too. So, like, I always think about what was the – the scandal with the kids wearing the MAGA hats and dancing around. Oh, the the
0: Covington scandal? Yeah, the Covington.
1: And that kind of stuff, the fact that that now becomes, like, standard, like, People point at that. Like when that video came out and people sharing on
0: Facebook and everything and people, you know, whoever hated Trump or hates like... Yeah, two a two-second clip becomes that kid becomes the embodiment of all privileged white Catholic students everywhere. And then you see the whole video and he's, he's totally innocent.
1: And yeah. So so just this idea that it's really kind of permeated into our society too, this resistance mentality.
2: No, I agree. And so we've seen a rushed judgment. But I also think a very alarming loosening of terms. You know, words matter. Mm -hmm. And yet we now have a resistance that routinely calls anyone who is a a Trump supporter a, a white nationalist or a racist to the point where we are so demeaning and cheapening those words. It's it's actually very concerning for society or the number of people who are on a daily basis accused of or accuse someone else of committing treason. I mean, <laughs> treason's quite a serious crime. Uh, you have to actually really put some effort into it. And, you know, and in some ways it's almost worse than accusing someone of murder. You are essentially saying that you have sold out your nation and put it, the lives of everyone in it at risk. I mean, that's a that's a big word. Word. So, I, I think that that's been an unfortunate aspect of this. Like you said, that
0: everyone's become a bit hyperbolic in everything that is said. So, we're almost out of time. So, maybe to end, even if despite Trump, despite a lot of the impeachment charges being probably overblown, do you see an argument for I mean, some, some Republicans are making this argument now, it seems like, that maybe the Republican Party would be better off removing him anyway. It, it might help the 2020 chances. Pence would be a more reliable conservative policy person. And people also say the Democrats might regret not removing Bill Clinton when they had had the chance in 98, 99.
2: Okay, so whenever I see this, I actually almost I have to stop myself from laughing out loud. Okay, because anyone who is making that case has forgotten that there is a substantial portion of the Republican Party that are committed Donald Trump supporters Mm -hmm. and. Mitt Romney, whatever, or Pierre Delecto, that's one thing. But I'll tell you what, if you are Susan Collins and you are up for re-election in Maine and you vote to impeach Donald Trump, co- convict him in a trial, you lose. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's let's just talk about what the blunt reality is on the ground for a lot of these people, too. Um, you know, and I'm not I don't want to be so cynical as to suggest that if there was an actual crime found, the Republicans wouldn't, in fact, have an obligation to vote to commit convict. But since you asked about the political point, which is, would it be better politically? No, it would not be wise for the Republican Party to do that, because I think it would guarantee defeat not just for a lot of senators and
1: House members, but for Mike Pence in 2020. And not to mention, Donald Trump was democratically elected (laughs) and is the legitimate president.
2: Let's point that out. (laughs)
1: That's a hot take. It's easy
2: to to forget that.
1: (laughs) Uh, Great. Well, Kim, thank you for
0: coming on the show.
2: No, thank you for having me, guys.
0: As always, thank you, Kim, for joining us. Thank you to you all for listening. We say this every time, but if you like this podcast, please tell your friends, leave a review, rate us on iTunes, do whatever it is you people do. Today may be the last day. Potentially ever,
1: that we have reason to be optimistic that the Nats could actually win a World Series. Right now, it looks like they're going to completely blow it. We're recording on Tuesday, and tonight they may be eliminated, which would be absolutely devastating for Matt here, who has just discovered that he's a Nats fan in the last year. I am a long time Nats fan. Way back in
0: 2017, I converted watching them when they still had Daniel Murphy, my favorite, and uh, they let us down two years ago. But I think, well, by the time you listen to this, I could be very prescient or I could be totally wrong, but I think they're going to win, go to Game 7. I think Scherzer's injury was actually a positive, possibly a positive thing because he was supposed to pitch Game 5 against Cole, the Astros' star. Cole was so dominant, I think even if Scherzer pitched, we would the Nationals would have lost that game, and now Strasburg wins tonight, Tuesday night, and then we've got Scherzer hopefully for Game 7, and the Astros will not be able to cope.
1: That may be fine.
0: I still think they're going to lose, but my bigger issue here
1: is that for anyone who has been to a Nats game that is not in the World Series, you know that you look around the stadium and it's probably at thirty percent occupancy. That's not true. That... Tickets cost nothing. Nobody wants to go. What the bigger it's problem? Like... The bigger problem is the people that were leaving Game Five early. The other exactly. Day. Like and and who who was it? The one to was it Game Five? Game Five of the. Division series, yeah, I don't a wild card, Which, whichever LLDS. series went to five games earlier, yeah. I knew someone here who went, and he said he bought a ticket for twenty dollars, and there were a bunch of open seats at the at the stadium. This is this was an elimination game. I will defend
0: I will defend the Nats fans myself, among them, for not having a lot of hope in the NLDS as Nationals fans, longtime Nats fans like myself. We've become so used to just horrendous, heartbreaking losses in the first round of the playoffs. This was the first year they ever made it to the NLCS. That it's not. I don't fault people too much for not getting there, for just expecting more of the same. NLCS on, bar the door, all and all, anything is possible. I will say, though, it was disappointing. Any more disappointing than Miami Heat fans? I don't know. Miami fans are also notoriously bad. LA fans are notoriously bad. I It'll just take a little bit for the, for the city to acclimate themselves to this new city of champions that we're building here in DC. But the Capitals have done it. The Nationals are on the way. And... It would be exciting. I mean, it would be exciting. <laughs> the the Redskins, on the other hand, are absolutely the R uh, words. Yeah, the uh they
1: they're not doing anything
0: fast. No, they're terrible. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, that's good. You gotta you gotta you gotta stick with your team. I feel like the Redskins actually have a, a true fan base. Even though they're the worst DC sports team well, I mean, the Wizards no, the
0: No, the, the skins have a great fan base, but I mean then they've been loyal. You gotta have so much more respect for people who stick with the team through thick and thin rather than I feel I mean, personally attacked here. The spin zone, though, I, if the Nationals win, it's almost even better for people like me and and true Nats fans like myself because <laughs> it will make us stick with them through the adversity. And then when really? a de- yeah, well, and then when a decade from now, or however long it may be, the Nationals finally do get the World Series win, it will be that much more rewarding.
1: This coming from the guy who professes to be a diehard Patriots fan. And said yesterday at lunch that he will likely stop following the Patriots closely when Tom Brady retires. That's not what I said. I.e., when the Patriots are not the most dominant team in football for the first time in his life, he will stop watching.
0: No, that's what I said was (laughs) – what I said was the – base. I I am going to become much more of a Nationals fan when inevitably Brady and Belichick retire, probably in about 12 years. They both have a long way to go in their careers because the NFL is slowly going to fade out as concussions and things of that nature – take a toll both on the pool of talent coming into the nfl and the consciousness of people watching the nfl i disagree i I think the nfl will decline and i think the mlb slumped a little bit but i think it bottomed out about five or ten years ago in terms of viewership and now it's back on the up and up and this is perhaps just because i just finished the book Moneyball, but baseball now (laughs) seems to be the hot new thing
1: i i agree with you in the long in the long term about football this is i i I made this argument so many times and then i no one ever agree with me so Point i kind of i kind of i kind of gave it up i think i mean the, the fact is football's fan base is so big and it's like yeah i sit here i'm like wow these people are getting concussed Mo- but most people just don't really think about it i mean it's it's, it's a sport it's fun it's but, like i played football i didn't play it like you know at you high school football? i didn't play it at high school i think my friends played all the time it's just something you did and it's not like you went out there to 12 year old kid thinking i could get a concussion
0: i did get a concussion playing football one time it probably shows it's just a it's the quintessentially american sport and people compare it to a gladiator match i think that's way overblown like it's overblown but it's still barbaric no it is not barbaric no barbaric is not the right word at all people know the risks that they're that they come in with football at least they do now they do now and the nfl's i mean i'm not i'm no fan of roger Goodell. he totally railroaded the patriots who are innocent of all wrongdoing but the People know the risks and the NFL is making it safer with helmets and new rules. If anything, the NFL is becoming more unwatchable because there's too many penalties because they're going, they're a little overzealous with the the injuries. But even you listen to some of the players and the players say stuff like, the NFL is making all these new rules, eliminating head-to-head hits. But a lot of players say all that has led them to do is people go for the knees now. And from a player point of view, a lot of them say, I would rather have a concussion and only miss a game or two. Then have an ACL injury and miss the whole season. Yeah, but I mean the issue of the concussion is, that you miss a game or two. It's that
1: you get a bunch of them and you get long term brain damage and you're completely screwed. up. Yeah,
0: yeah. A long, I mean, maybe what they need is just after you have a certain amount of concussions, you just have to. Well, that's what ha- I mean. That's what ha- that's
1: what happened to like uh, well Andrew Luck, right? Or no, what was his Andrew Luck? He. I don't know if it was about concussion, concussions, but there's, but there's been a but there's been a bunch of big players who have resigned. Yeah, or there was retired. that
0: there's that fantastic linebacker for the uh, 49ers, I think, who, who retired because he was worried about concussions. And it, I mean, it's under, this is why I think long term football is going to be in trouble. But I don't know. I mean, the, the main issue is the fo- the players are just too big. Sean Merriman, who was a uh, that great linebacker for the Chargers a while ago, he was I think hundred pounds heavier, something insane, way heavier than Jerry Rice. And also ran basically just as fast as Jerry Rice, and he got in trouble for steroids and and that stuff. But when you have just bodies that are this physically gigantic and talented, colliding at full at speeds never seen before in the NFL, this type of thing is just it's common. So maybe maybe they got a maybe it's a PED issue. Maybe they need to have I don't know I don't know what they need to have. Well,
1: in any event, all we know we don't know about the fate of football, but we do know the next banter episode. By then, it will be decided. Are the Nats World Series champions? I will wager one special guest episode that they are not.
0: <laughs> if the Nats win, Matt can pick a host. You're gonna give up and if I and if I win, I get to pick a host. Uh, I'm I'm not agreeing <laughs> to that. I we should turn this into a parley, parlay. Like uh Nats minus 250 <laughs> plus Elizabeth Warren at like two to one odds. And if you if you end like if you hit on <laughs> if all you the, did it all. Yeah, we gotta have some type of creative bet where if you hit like when Super Tuesday comes around, we gotta have a bet on like all the different, <laughs> all the different finishing spots and whatever sports are going on on the same day. But uh, until then, we'll we'll, th- we'll think on that. We have some time. Until then, thank you again to Kim for coming on, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. I'm Matt Winesett and I'm Max Frost, and you're too far away from the microphone.
1: And I'm Max Frost. All
0: right.